0: Alright, this time, for sure, finish my lesson, whatever happens. We gotta stay till two o'clock today, we'll do it. Not, not really. Just a quick review. This is the third part of my one part message on this. And we talked last time about the two main methodologies of Bible translation. First of all, the formal equivalence. And this tries to match the form of the original word for word. And then what's called functional or dynamic equivalence. It tries to match meaning and the style of the original or be more thought-for-thought thought than word-for-word. Word. And it can actually help with the meaning, but it may take an interpretation that takes the text in a particular direction. And it happens with all translations. Every translation has to make some kind of interpretation. Uh, I also mentioned last time that there's just some ones in between. We, we saw this spectrum, so we have the New American Standard, say, on the side here that's more literal. Uh, ESV, NIV, kind of more in the, the middle... And then things like the New Living or the New International Reader's Version on the the far right, they're intended more for people who who are not, so maybe don't have English as a first language. Um, So they they just have different audiences. Now, I talked some time last week about transliteration, and I wanted to talk about that again a little bit. Uh, Transliteration is taking the words in a source language and then... Representing them with the same sounds as best as possible in the target language. So, in this case, we had we looked at James 5:4, and King James and New American Standard uh, translate the, this term, the Lord of Sabaoth, because James uses the word Sabaoth in the Greek. He took the Hebrew term, like Lord of Hosts, as we see later, that Sabaoth was written in Greek letters from the Hebrew in James. But other translations will do things like Lord of Hosts, Lord Almighty, Lord of Armies. This is probably the most clear, explicit as to what Lord of Sabaoth means to, to modern ears. And there was a question about why not, if, why not just transliterate things into English if you're transliterating it into Greek? And that's a good question. Um, but it, again, it depends on the, how you want to get the meaning across. Who were James's audience they were Jews. It says, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. So James is writing to mostly Jews, and Jews are going to know what Sabayoth means, and so James can use that Hebrew term when he's writing in Greek to these people. Now, the question is, how does a translator into English do that? If I was writing a, a, a book, and I had a, an English, in an, an English, and a person came into a room and said, hola. Now, if, you, if I say hola to you, I think you all know hola means hello in Spanish because we're kind of familiar with that, I don't need to translate it for you. But if we were translating my book into a language that was completely separate from English and Spanish, that didn't didn't have that sort of knowledge, uh, let's say some language in India or Africa, would I translate that word, would I, would I write the word hola best I could in the target language? Probably not. I'd probably just say hello in that target language, even though it would lose some of the Maybe jauntiness or whatever it is of the of the Ola, if I say it in English. The point is, translation is difficult, and you're always making choices. And what the choice, the right choice is, uh, isn't always clear. A little bit more about transliteration. Uh, the most common transliterations are proper names: Adam, Eve, Abraham, Jerusalem, place names, people names. Those sorts of things are. Uh, reflections of how the names sound in Hebrew or Greek. In the New Testament, we have Iesus becomes Jesus, of course. Uh, Petros becomes Peter. Uh, Thessalonike becomes Thessalonica. Uh, so, people place names are transliterated very often, but it can refer to or it can create some confusion. Uh, for example, the, the King James um, in Matthew eleven fourteen says. And if you ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Now, who's Elias? Well, you know who it is. But if you just if you never read the Bible before, and you're given this this, thing, you might have a note to study Bible. But who is Elias? Well, you don't know. If you don't know the story of Elijah and how Elijah, the term Elijah, word Elijah, came from the Hebrew into Greek as Elias. King James translators translated translated as Elias, because it is Elias in the Greek. So this is more faithful, you might say, to the Greek sounds, but it, it's confusing as to who the person is, actually, that uh, Jesus is referring to here. And so modern translations use the Hebrew names of characters that are referred to in the Old Testament to avoid confusion like this. So, for example, we have uh, Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, There's a man named Zechariah from the Old Testament. He's referred to in the New Testament. His Greek name is Zecharias, But when you're referring to the Old Testament, Zechariah, you call him Zechariah in the New Testament in English to avoid confusion. But what's John the Baptist's father's name? Zecharias, Because we don't know him from the Old Testament. So we call him Zacharias to distinguish him from the Zechariah. It just makes it a little less confusing, hopefully. Same name, though. Another Uh, there's the NASB, John himself is Elijah. Another more confusing thing is Hebrews 4.8. And this is, King James says, for if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of, he would not then have spoken of another day. And this is in the context of entering the promised land. Now, the the writer of Hebrews has been talking about how Jesus gives us rest. Jesus gives us rest. Why does he say now that Jesus, he's saying Jesus really had not given them rest. Well, the the key is that the name Jesus is the same as the name what in the Old Testament, Joshua. Right. So, Jesus' name is the what the Hebrew name of Joshua would be. So, while the the word in Greek, Iesus, is used in this in this uh, this verse, it's actually referring to the man we call Joshua. And so, if you know that, this makes sense. If you don't know that, this makes no sense. It sounds like this is contradicting what the writer of Hebrews has said. So, uh, modern English translations are going to say, but for if Joshua had given this, given the rest, and maybe have a a note saying this is the Greek word, uh, Jesus. But we want to make sure that it's clear. It's not referring to Jesus Christ the Lord. It's referring to Joshua in the Old Testament here in Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus, again, is the same name as Joshua in Hebrew and in Greek. Another thing like this is... The writer of the book of Jude, his name—there's no name Jude. His name is Judas. But there's also another important guy named Judas in the New Testament. You guys remember him. So we have Judas who betrayed the Lord. But when we refer to the brother of Christ who wrote the book of Jude, we call him Jude just to avoid confusion. So we don't have a book of Judas. It sounds kind of funny, right? If we had a book of Judas in the Bible, it sounds—it sounds like it's referring to the more famous Judas. And, of course, the, the name Jude or Judas comes from what Hebrew name? Judah. Good. So if we were referring to the man Judah and the line of the tribe of Judah, that's going to say Judas, isn't it? But we don't say he's the line of the tribe of Judas. He's of Judah because he's the Old Testament character we call Judah. Another example of transliteration uh, that's I, I thought about this week, and it's, probably the most important transliteration in the New Testament, and that is the word Christ. The word Christ is not an English word, it's a Greek word. And it's an important term in the Old Testament, going back to this concept. We have this Hebrew word, uh, Mashiach, which we call Messiah. Uh, we usually transliterate it as Messiah in English, and it means the Anointed One, or the Anointed. And we don't have a lot of time to go a detailed discussion about this, but This term, anointed one, Messiah, is usually translated something like anointed one in the New American Standard. It's used of priests, it's used of prophets, it's used of Saul. But other kings are called the anointed one, Mashiach. And even Cyrus the Persian, who was a pagan, in Isaiah 45, is called Messiah. He's God's Messiah, because he's an anointed one, and he's anointed by God for a special purpose. But there's also... Uh, another Messiah, an anointed one, who's referred to, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but infrequently. So we have here Daniel 9, 25, 26. It talks about this. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, of the anointed one, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, it's interesting. Um, Mashiach is used a number of times in the Old Testament. This is the only place in the New American Standard, where it's actually translated Messiah instead of translating it anointed one. And so this this kind of... They're interpreting, aren't they, that this is referring to not just any old anointed one, any old king, but somebody who's going to be foreshadowed in the book of Daniel. And this Messiah, this Mashiach, was anticipated even before Jesus was born by the Jews. We see here in Luke twelve uh, eleven. 11. You know this one from your Christmas story. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, yes. And then Simeon, remember faithful Simeon later in Luke 2, 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon had this idea of who the Christ. Was going to be there was a promised Christ. Simeon knew about that. the The shepherds knew something about who that might be, and so now the angels are saying that it's, or the Holy Spirit is saying in this case that this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Anointed One. Later, Luke three fifteen. Now this is some time, some years later. The people were in a state of an expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. So these Jews and then John's day, Jesus' day, are looking forward to the Christ and wondering if John is Him. Now, in each of these cases, the Greek term, the Greek word Christos is used, and it's not a, not a Hebrew word, it's a Greek word Christos, and Christos means anointed one. So it's exactly equivalent to Mashiach, Messiah in the Hebrew, and the word Christos in the Greek is exactly equivalent. But when it came time to talk about the Christ, in the New Testament, they didn't use the word uh, Mashiach or some Greekified word, except a couple of cases I'll show you in a minute. In the New American Standard, interestingly, in the first couple chapters of Matthew, the word Christos is used a few times, but it's kind of back transliterated into Messiah. So they took this Greek word Christos and they transliterated it into Hebrew and then put it into English. Does that make sense? So, when it says the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the word Messiah is not Messiah in Greek, it's Christos, but they converted it into the Hebrew word Messiah for the benefit of you English readers. But there's also a note saying it's the Greek word Christos. Same thing a few verses later, in Matthew 16 and and, uh, 17 and 18, it talks about Jesus who is called the Messiah, and it mentions from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. But then it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So, this word Messiah, Christos in Greek, Christos, and now we say Christ. So it's inconsistent in some way, but they had a purpose for this. They were referring to the, this promised one who is the Messiah, even though it uses the Greek word Christ, but when it talks about Jesus Christ himself, they use the word uh, Christ. They transliterate Christ from Greek into English instead of from Greek into Hebrew and into English. Is, is that kind of clear? It, it's interesting translation choices by the New American Standard I should have compared this in other translations, but don't have time for that right now. Um, Now, later on, Matthew, it also mentions, Herod inquired of them, the chief priests and so forth, where, where the Messiah was to be born again. This is the term Christ, Christos in Greek. But they translate it Messiah because it's in that sort of Jewish sphere of the anointed one who is the promised one who is to come. Now, there's only twice is the word Messiah the Hebrew word Messiah, transliterated into Greek as messias. So, Mashiach in Hebrew becomes messias in Greek. And it's only in the Gospel of John. And so we have here in John one forty one, Andrew found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And then John 4.25, the Samaritan woman at the well said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Now, John's audience is Greek speakers, not primarily Jews, but we still have here Jesus, or, or rather, when Jesus talks about, or, or the, sorry, John talks about the Messiah, he uses a Greek word, Messias, which comes from the, the Hebrew, but he translates it in both cases as Christ. So, we have found the Messias, Messias rather, which was translated means Christos. So, John himself is translating this Hebrew word into Greek for the benefit of his his Greek uh, readers, so they know what Messiah actually means. Now, the word Christos is used over 500 times, and Messias is mentioned only twice. So the vast majority of time, the preference is to translate the Hebrew term for anointed one into Greek. So you translate from Hebrew into Greek when you get Mashiach to Christos, but when we come from Greek into English, we transliterate, which is, again, an interesting choice. The, the uh, translators of the NSB, just as an example, always, and I expect almost always in other English translations, transliterate Christos as Christ. They don't translate it as anointed one. Although sometimes there is a footnote that says anointed one or Messiah there. We think about uh, Peter's confession in Matthew sixteen sixteen. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Would it make sense to translate that as you are the anointed one? the Son of the Living God, or you are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God? I think it would. It would be fair to translate it that way. Um, and I did a little bit of research and had some thoughts about this. I don't know exactly why it's not translated, anointed or anointed one, um, but it may be that the, there's influence of the Vulgate in other translations. If you look at the Vulgate, it also uses the word um, Christus as the, the Latin equivalent of the Greek word Christos. But even before that, I think the reason is, is in this, is that as this term Christos is used in the course of the New Testament, it transitions from the technical term, meaning the anointed one of this promised Messiah, to more of a proper name. As we said before, proper names are usually translated or transliterated, like, like Jesus and, and Paul and Peter and so forth. So you, you tend t- to transliterate uh, proper names instead of translating them. So even when it comes to the the name that's given to Jesus' followers in Acts 11.26, the disciples were first called, they weren't called some sort of Jesus followers or something, they were called Christians, which means those who belong to Christ, the, the Christ followers, and so forth. Um, the idea is they were followers of this man, Jesus, who was also called Christ, not that they were followers of the anointed one as such. And Paul, in particular, uses the term more as a proper name than as a title. So Galatians 2.20... I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Um, It would sound kind of funny if it says, I have been crucified with the anointed one, and it is no longer I who live, but the anointed one lives in me. Paul is not referring to Jesus' sort of status as the anointed one, but it's more of a proper name here, Christ who lives in me. Or Philippians 121, for to me to live is the anointed one, and to die is gain. Again, the word Christ here is used more as a proper name. You could almost interchange it with Jesus. Um, And so that's why we translate it, I expect, as Christ, transliterate it as Christ instead of translating it as the Anointed One. One writer said about this topic, it's remarkable that in the nearly 400 uses of Christos in the letters of Paul, most of them written, of course, to predominantly Gentile churches, there's only one clear case of its use in its original technical sense, that is, the technical sense of the Anointed One. So Paul almost always refers to Jesus when he refers to him as Christ. It's not a, a technical term and encompassing his status as anointed one, but rather a proper name of who Jesus is. Now, is that clear as mud? N- not everything I find interesting is interesting to you, so feel free to tell me later. Yeah? I didn't, no. I could do it in a few seconds, but... We'll look at it maybe later, if you want. Now, I talked before about how translation is uh, an interpretive process. You have to interpret it sometimes. But sometimes the translation, I think, strays too far from more translation into interpretation. And it's not just a problem with dynamic equivalence, either. So, uh, there's example, an example of uh, extensive discussion in Romans 7 and 8 about the flesh. You might remember that. But I want to focus at a verse in Galatians. Galatians 5.16 says this, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Pretty well-known verse. A New King James says something me similar. Walk by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, this word translated flesh is a word sarks we would spell it in English, S-A-R-X. It refers to human and animal bodies. It can be used as uh, your actual bodies himself. Or it can be used figuratively. Romans eleven fourteen, Paul says, if somehow, he speaks, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, and that's the word flesh, I might move to jealousy my fellow flesh and save some of them. So Paul uses this term flesh to refer to the Jews, those who are of his same body, you might say. And it can even go beyond just the physical. So John one fourteen says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> in fact, the the Latin word uh, from which we get our word incarnation is also referring to the Latin word for flesh. So we have Starks in Greek. Uh, carne, like in Spanish, as well as other languages, related languages, is, is a, a word for flesh. <clears throat> But here in John 1.14, it's not just saying that Jesus took on a physical body, but it's saying that he took on all that we are as humans. So our mental, spiritual capacities, everything that we are as men and women, Jesus was except without sin. So it's not just that Jesus had a physical body, but he also had a, a full human nature. But now what about the translation here of Galatians 5.16? Now if we're more on the literal side, we can just see this word sarks and translate it flesh, and we're all done. You don't have to worry about any interpretation. But the word flesh here is not just referring to the literal body. We are not dualists saying that flesh is evil and spirit is good. But there's a spiritual problem here that Paul's referring to. Paul isn't saying, your problem, Galatians, is that you have fleshly bodies. What he's saying is there's a flesh in you that is lusting as it ought not to. You need to, to fight that flesh. So if you want to, so we can think of, say, Matthew fifteen nineteen of the spiritual problem, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. The problem is not with your flesh as flesh, but your heart, and that's a figurative sense, not your the beating thing inside your chest, but your spiritual heart is the source of these sins in you. So if you want to make it clear to the reader that this is not talking about the physical body but a spiritual problem, what what do you do here? How do you translate this? The original NIV from the 80s said this in Galatians 5.16, So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now, that maybe getting that's getting closer to the idea of sin. It has to do with the sin. And it's not just a fleshly thing, but it's a, a nature thing or a sin thing inside of you. But then we have the issue of whether it's correct to say that Christians have a sinful nature. Do Christians have a sinful nature? That's a theological issue that the translators of the NIV were bringing into this. But then if we say something like 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Or Ephesians 2.5 says, when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. So is there a different reality now for Christians? Do they still have a sinful nature? Or is that sinful nature dead and buried, and we're raised up with Christ as new creatures? There is some kind of interpretation happening there when we translate this as sinful nature. So, what happened is, if you have an NIV that's more modern, more recent, we get this. <clears throat> they gave up. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the translators realized that sinful nature was taking it too far in interpretation of what this word "sarks" means in this context, and so they just uh, reverted to flesh, which is uh, easier as a translator, but maybe a little less clear for the reader. Get an example of some of the difficulties you get as a translator of the, of anything, but particularly the scriptures. Did that that make sense as well? Okay, let me give a few more examples of just sort of side by side comparisons between the literal, New American Standard side, versus dynamic, sort of towards the NIV and even further towards dynamic. And I wanted to just look at a couple of a few verses here. One one pair of verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2. New American Standard says this, "I Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And there's a note there, spiritual service says rational. Rational service. Um, ESV says, I appeal to you, therefore, br- brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. NIV, so again, we're going from sort of left to right in that uh, graph we saw before. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then the Good News Bible says this. So then, my brothers and sisters, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, Dedicated to your to his service and pleasing to him, this is the true worship that you should offer. Now, notice here that um, this uh, this term "brethren" in New American Standard. I think what well, we have this this word that means brothers, literally in Greek, but it can mean not just brothers, like I have two brothers, but it can mean brothers and those say who who are in, a, who are in a fellowship, not necessarily male, but could be male and female in a group, and so. Some translations want to take that idea, and when it's not explicitly referring to males, to open it up. And so where ESV is a little more literal here, saying brothers, um, NIV and Good News refer to brothers and sisters. Now, brothers and sisters, I think, gets the idea more clearly. It's less male-focused. But then I I, I wouldn't make a point as a preacher saying, and here Paul is talking about brothers and sisters because there's, there's no word sisters in the Greek. Does that make sense? But the idea is there in this word adelphoi, um, from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So we should call Philadelphia the city of brotherly and sisterly love now, right? Um, I kind of like the way the New American Standard does this. It kind of sidesteps the whole issue. I think by calling it brethren, it's a little more archaic. Not something we use very often, but it's a little less male-focused. But I think that the latest New American Standard does not use brethren anymore. I have to check that. Now, another—this uh, is a very small thing—but notice here, New in, American in Standard mentions the mercies of God. ESV mercies, uh, NIV good news say mercy. Um, good news says great mercy. Now, the 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 word mercy is plural, and I think the mercies—the the fact that this is talking about. Uh, Romans 11 in previous chapters, all the great things God's done for us. It's not just one mercy, or even mercy in a broad sense, but individual mercies. God gives us, um, more, like morning by morning, new mercies I see. And so, the good news, whereas NIV talks about mercy in a singular, NASB, ESV is more literal, talk about the mercies, the plural of God, and good news sort of extrapolates that idea of mercies as a great mercy. Uh, Verse 2 of of Romans 12. The New American Standard says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. ESV says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's fairly similar. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, NIV says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then good news. Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Then you will be able to know the will of God, what is good and pleasing to him, and is perfect. So a few things here about this this verse in these different translations. Um, This... In New American Standard says, do not be conformed. This is kind of a passive thing. You are being conformed. Same thing in ESV. NIV has a, a more active, says do not conform to the world. And then good news is kind of a, we call it a reflexive. Do not conform yourselves. So you're, you're conforming yourselves to the world. Now, the thing is, in the Greek, it can be a passive or, or a middle, meaning not conform yourself. So NASB, ESV, and even good news are literal, but you can't tell necessarily by the exact Greek unless you look at the context, and you're much more expert than me, whether it's a passive or a middle voice. And if you don't understand those, don't worry about it. The idea is, is somebody conforming me? Am I conforming, or am I conforming myself? What's the actual idea Paul is getting across here? And the translators have to make that decision as to how they represent that in English. Um, notice here also that the ESV and NASB are fairly literal, talking about this world. This world—it's it, just using the word, the term "world" more broadly. But NIV says that the pattern of this world, <clears throat> and good news, says standards of this world. The world word "pattern" and "standards" is not in the Greek, but it gets the idea of being conformed to this world. It's not just the the world as a a ball in space, but referring to the the way that the world lives in in a more figurative sense. Uh, Here we have uh, in NASB, renewing of your mind, renewal of your mind, again, renewing of your mind, NIV. But here's Good News Bible says, let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. So it's, it's, again, extrapolating out in in some ways what the, the meaning is here. Um, This, this be transformed <clears throat> is, is passive here. Uh, be transformed. It doesn't say who's transforming, does it? Be transformed. Be transformed. Be transformed. But this says, let God transform you. And God is not in this verse here as such. But that is the idea. Who is it who transforms us? That God transforms us. So the good news translator sort of put that in there. Because it's a passive. We're not, we're not transforming ourselves, but God is transforming us. We're being transformed in a kind of a, a passive sense. And we have then uh, inwardly, by I mentioned, a complete change of your mind, relating to renewing or, or uh, renewing of your mind or renewal of your mind. Same kind of idea. And then this word prove, here at the end that you may prove what the will of God is. This is. Makes it sound like a, you're, you're proving a math theorem, something like that. It kind of has that idea, but but testing and testing and approving. In fact, NIV uses the word test and approve. They sort of expand one word into two things. I think. Um, and then we we have here, though, in Good News Bible, that you can know the will of God. So the word know, the, the word for the Hebrew or the Greek word for know is not in this verse, but that's maybe that get, kind of gets to the idea. That's a little less complicated than, than prove what the will of God is or test and approve and so forth. So you see how some, some decisions were made along the way to convert some passive things to active or that kind of thing. And subtle ways of interpreting different words as we translate them in English. Now, one last example here, John, first John rather, 2-2. <clears throat> Numeric American Standard says this, he himself, speaking of Jesus, of course, he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of, and the, the word those of <coughs> is supplied by the translators, <coughs> so not for ours only, but also for the whole world or those of the whole world. And uh, ESV says he is a propitiation. We use the term propitiation again. Not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. NIV says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And good news says, and Christ himself is the means by which our sins are forgiven, and not our sins only, but also the sins of everyone. So some uh, particular distinctions. New American Standard speaks of he himself, in fact, so does the good news, sort of. In Greek, you can have an emphasis by putting a, a pronoun in there, so it's not just he, but it's he himself. That's an emphasis in the Greek that's often brought out in the New American Standard, but it just sort of collapses that into he in the ESV and NIV. And notice here that uh, in the Good News Bible, the, the word Christ is not in this verse in the in the Greek, but they put that in there just to make it clear who they're referring to. Christ himself is the means. Now, the interesting thing comes with this term propitiation, propitiation, atoning sacrifice, or the means by which our sins are forgiven. Now, Tom's been talking about the the temple, tabernacle, the mercy seat. The, the word translated here, propitiation, and other things, is related to the word, the Greek word that is used for the mercy seat over the ark. So it's a, you talk about the place of atonement. But the question is, how do you translate that idea into English? And if you look at the the commentaries you'll see different interpretations of exactly what this means. And so you see that in the, the translations. A propitiation has the idea of if someone uh, being angry with you or having a, a, separate, or a separated relationship, and now something makes them favorable towards you. That means to propitiate someone is to make them favorable towards you. And so the idea is that before God was angry with us, but now because of Christ, he can now be favorable toward us, which is a true... Uh, statement, but is that what John's is getting at? Uh, the NIV mentions atoning sacrifice, and so now it's referring to the payment that's due for an offense. Looking back at the Old Testament, you offend God; you need to to, to pay for that with a sacrifice. And then the Good News Bible says He's the means by which our sins are forgiven. It doesn't mention the sacrifice as such. Um, plus, the word means He it says means He's He's the way to forgiveness, but it doesn't focus on what. Christ accomplished. So the idea here again is: is this verse talking about what Jesus accomplished uh, in reconciling us to God, or is it referring more to the to the fact that he he sacrificed himself? All these things are true, but what exact? What's the best way to represent exactly the, the concept that John is giving us in the Greek and the English? And if there's a, a, a discussion about that in the commentaries, it's hard to find just the right word. Again, does that make sense? It, it's hard to explain in, in brief, but there's, there are a lot of... Some things very subtle, not so subtle in translation work. How do you get that across best? Especially this word, appreciation is only used a few times in the, in the New Testament, and so how do you understand that properly? And then, a the last comment here, we have the whole world in NASB, the sins of the whole world, um, the whole world, and this says sins of everyone. Is that the idea that people will say, well, this this is universalism? Do you want to use the word world? The word word world is in the Greek, but to call it everyone may be, again, a step too far. So, that's just a couple side-by-side things. We can do that for for hours, but let me just end with a few concluding thoughts. One is, an obvious one, languages change. The King James Version is a wonderful translation, but It's been around more than 400 years, and it was not perfect when it came out. And it's even less so now in terms of how it fits within English as it is now. And it's through no fault of its own. The translators were not perfect. They were not omniscient. They weren't inspired in the way that the original writers were. And the translators didn't have a time machine. They had no way of guessing how English was going to change over the years. And so they did a wonderful job in their own time with what they had. Another point is that there is no best Bible translation. What if I asked you, um, what's the best car? Or what's the best shoe? What's your question going to be? What, what do you want it for? What do you need the car for? Are you going to drive to work? Are you going to uh, do a cross-country trek? Do you need to haul stuff? Um, if you want a shoe, are you going to be running? Are you going to be walking, standing for long periods of time? Are you going hiking? Uh Those questions are important. So there's no best shoe or best car. There's not a best Bible translation. What are you using the translation for? For reading? For studying? Preaching? Memorizing? Evangelizing? Is is it for an adult? Is it for a teen? For a child? People who are learning English? All those things factor into what is maybe the best one for you, but there may not be a best one for everyone. Another important point is that there is no translation that is always closest to the Hebrew or Greek. No translation is consistently literal or dynamic. Translation, as I said before, is a balancing act. So you can find examples, and there's websites with all these things. People who don't like New American Standard or or NIV, whatever it is, you can find long lists of verses that these are translated wrong and this is horrible and don't use this translation. There may be some merit sometimes in some of those things. Some translation philosophies are too far... Things like changing all the the term father, referring to God as the father-mother or something weird like that. That would be definitely a step too far. But in the more conservative area of the evangelical world, with uh, people we would broadly agree with, while well, we, we can have quibbles here and there, for the most part, they're, they're excellent translations. And you can find cases where the... NIV or the Good News Bible is closer to the Hebrew or Greek perhaps than some of the more literal translations depending on what the choices were made. One other important point is we are blessed. We can thank God we're so blessed to be in this position. uh, To have so many translations now that we can argue about which one is the best one. Imagine going to a a country where our language that only had one translation into their language, or maybe overly, only a portion, maybe a New Testament, or, or just one book, or nothing at all. And we have a, a great luxury, you might say, in being able to argue about which is the best English Bible translation. So for us, as English speakers, we can use multiple ones if, if you can. It can help you in understanding. Looking at one side to side the other can help know what, what is really being said in these particular verses. Um when you see all those translations, it might undermine... Sorry, I went too far. Um, when you see those translations, it might undermine your confidence, but it should strengthen your confidence because you can't compare them side by side. And the blessing for us is that for any good translation, all the history, all the great doctrines of the faith, even minor doctrines, all we need to know for eternal salvation and for a life of godliness are there. I don't think, Brett, Tom, you ever talked to somebody uh, and they said they, ca- they came to you with their new NIV and you said, I don't know, I think you're going to get led astray by that thing. Uh, I'm not. If somebody brings me an NIV, I'm not going to worry about them if they're, if they're reading it consistently and they're studying it. Other ones might be problems, but for the most part, any sort of mainstream um, evangelical translation is going to be good for their soul. We look at John 3.16, for example, the gospel is there. NASB, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. ESV, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. NIV says, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And good news says, for God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. So you can give any one of these to somebody who needs to know Christ and explain the gospel to them with it. Now this sort of hides, in a sense, some discussion about only begotten. What does this word mean in the Greek? What's the best way to translate it? One and only? Only son, one and only son, his only son. That's a good academic discussion. There's many papers on that. But the point is, you still know that Jesus is God's Son, and he was given so that we can be saved and be given eternal life if we believe in him. Ephesians 2.8.9, important, uh, sola fide, sola gratia. NASB, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. ESV, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I V, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Good news, for it is by God's grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not the result of your own efforts, but God's gift, so that no one can boast about it. So, can you give any one of these translations to somebody and get them to understand that it's salvation by grace through faith alone, and not by the works we've done ourselves? can. So, despite the important arguments about the strengths and weaknesses of all these translations, we can be confident and grateful that whatever English translations we use, whatever our preferences, whatever the translation gets right and wrong, we are holding God's word in our hands, and he speaks to us through it. And with a a word from the translators of the King James Version in their preface. They said this, We do not deny, nay, we affirm and avow that the very meanest translation of the Bible in English containeth the word of God, nay, is the word of God. Now, you see this word, the very meanest translation. We think of very meanest. You have some friends in school, who are, or people in school who are the very meanest people. You didn't like them very much, did you? The meanest were the the, the, the most unkind, Right? So I think it's appropriate that a quote from the King James translators uses an obsolete meaning of the word mean. So let me correct that, or bring it into modern English. The translators of the King James say, we do not deny, nay, we affirm and avow that the most inferior translation of the Bible in English containeth the word of God, nay, is the word of God. So when you're reading your Bible in English, you thank God that it is his word to you, and through it, you may grow in respect to salvation. Yeah, questions? So the most inferior translation, does that mean that even paraphrases that the message is still the word of I, I would, well, see, they're not translations. Passion and message are not translations. They are not even, uh, I would say, they go further than paraphrases. Uh, it's a, more of interpolation. I have not read the message closely enough to um, to say that much about it it's not to my taste at all um, but it speaks to some people so I would say if you're not and I've known of people who will bring the message Bible into church and sit and listen to the preaching of the word of God reading the message Bible uh, I don't I suppose there's some pastors who preach from it I hope there aren't but it could be um, if you're using it for private devotional re- reading, I might not be my thing. I wouldn't rebuke you for it, but I might warn you against it. I, I wouldn't buy one for myself. Um, I, I, don't know, I know less about the Passion Translation, for that matter, but we're talking about r- sort of real translations. Um, even some paraphrases like the, the Living Bible uh, was very popular back when I was growing up. Some of you are old enough to remember the Living Bible and, and various incarnations. And I know it was used by a lot of people to, to uh, lead them to Christ. Um, not that it's my favorite one either, but uh, that's much closer than, say, the the Passion or the, the Message. I, I'm not sure what to call it. Books. I wouldn't call them translations. I would say, I would ask them if they read an actual translation. If they don't, I would say you need to get a, a translation, even if it, if your English is not your strength. You maybe find NASB dry. Give them an NIV, something like that. If, if they'll if they read it, I would I would encourage them to find something else to, to, for their real study, memorization, and so forth. Yes, Leonard. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, is any language is n- never unambiguous. You can read the same English. Those of us who have grown up speaking English our whole lives, we can see the same sentence, and there could be some subtleties in the way something is said, and maybe it's different written and spoken. Same words, and because of a shade of, of inflection, the meaning. We can kind of get it, but people can see it. Well, think think of places like the Supreme Court or other, you know, looking at the laws. One, one judge sees the law, the other judge sees the same law, and they have different interpretations. They're not all, they're not necessarily both wrong, or one is not always necessarily right or wrong. There could be ambiguities. And that's for a language that we know well. So imagine a language that's 2,000 years old, that we're not expert in, and maybe you've taken a, a few years, and even in seminary, there are men who've studied Greek for Forty years, who are still arguing about how to translate propitiation. It's um, a hilasterion, something like that. That's that's a Greek word. There, how do you translate that? Well, you go back and, and you try and gather data. And so, for people like us, it can be a difficult thing. To how am I going to referee between these two guys who know uh, a lot more Greek <coughs> um, before the morning coffee than I ever learned in my life? So, not to say that. It's hopeless, uh, but we want to make sure that we have some humility, and, and it, but it also kind of drives us to, to keep learning and keep growing. Um, other, other things like, in the Greek, it's ambiguous sometimes, whether it's a, a verb is a, a middle or a passive. So something is happening to you, but are you doing it to yourself? It, it's, it's maybe more subtle than that, but you can't always tell from looking at the, if you were a computer and saying, this Greek word means this, it, it's not always that easy. And so that, that's why we have these, these men who study it for their whole lives. That's why they have these, these journals and books and they can argue this back and forth. And, but we're the beneficiaries of it when we get a good translation that comes out and hopefully a study Bible or commentary that at least lets us know what the issues are. Yeah, that's good. And that we talked before about the, the Greek and differences in the, the different Greek manuscripts that come along. And some will say, if there's so many differences in the Greek, how can I trust it at all? But we say there's differences, but none of them are, are all that important or very few are very important at all. And so we can have confidence that we have all these different manuscripts and say what we can compare and contrast them. Same thing in English. The fact that we have many translations means that we're not relying on one one guy's possible misinterpretation of a verse, we can check another one and say, "Now that guy probably didn't get it quite right. It's also good to have committees like Produce, numeric Standard, and ESV, others, of, so they can kind of balance each other out in terms of not just taking their own special translation. And because I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a Lutheran, or, or I'm a Baptist, I'm going to take this, and it's going to mean this. But there's some, some balance that can happen. All right. Any more questions? We're done. How about that? So next time, I think, back to life of Christ. So let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us in giving us your word in many translations, and we thank you for the many languages that your word has been translated into. We do pray you would hasten the speed of Many translations and languages don't have your word yet, or better translations of ones that exist already, that people, both those who know you and those who don't know you, can hear your word and grow with respect to salvation. May we take advantage of the opportunity we have as believers today to not neglect the treasure we have in our hands, but to even more eagerly know it and love it and live it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.